1: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 59. This week, the boys are back in town as the BGA crew attends Dreamation 2015. We also look at Diamonds, Roll Through the Galaxy, Pandemic Convention Version, and LARPing. Plus, our featured Kickstarter review of Between Two Cities. Listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at DiceTowerNetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us here this week. We have a great episode for you. Some really interesting acquisition disorders that are really going to blow your mind. Some at the tables and a special Kick in the Habit feature review of Between Two Cities. And we're also going to talk about our recent trip to Dreamation 2015. How'd Woo-hoo. you guys do there? Made out like a bandit. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we'll get to that in a couple minutes, but let's just say we came home with more than we went there with memories, many memories, games. <laughs> memories And games, memories of games.
2: We bought enough games that it's a not insignificant percentage of our body weight we were carrying home.
3: I have played more games in 48 hours than I ever have in my in any 48 hour period of my life. This was quite quite a blast. When you it can't remember awesome. how many when you can't remember how many games you've played, you've played enough
0: well you've never played
3: enough well at least for one one weekend you played enough for one weekend
2: yeah well, it depends on what you're playing
3: i guess you can play enough of some games
2: Could you imagine that just finishing up a game at a game store just nodding meaningfully and go i think i'm done And
3: just walking out
2: <laughs> i'm yeah. done
3: well i've done that from certain games is like yes i played this game i am done with this game yeah, there's certainly enough
2: field.
0: games out there that it's easy to reach that point. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, like <clears throat> risk, <clears throat> risk, and...
1: Um, oh, ooh, don't start it.
3: Uh, we'll <laughs> have a conversation about that at another time, Dan.
1: <laughs> well, we're a podcast about board games, miniature games, card games, recently LARPs, and all the fun you can possibly have at a convention legally, so... If, if it's analog, we do it. <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said... Let's shout it from the tabletop, Drew. Shout it from the tabletops. (laughs) Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. There's news.
3: It's been a while since I've been on doing the news. There is one Kickstarter that literally exploded. Exploding kittens. Set a record for $8.8 million on Kickstarter. My question to the team is, why?
1: People hate cats and they want to see them explode?
3: well, I mean, yes, because cats are <laughs> horrible, but... Uh... They know what they did. <laughs> I, I want to know, wasn't kittens in a blender enough for these people? <laughs> they had to take it one step further? Um, I mean, I'm talking about the, the buying public. What What is it about, you know, destroying cute little animals? Just cats. Just cats.
0: floating <laughs> oh. puppies game. People would get sad. But cats I, cats.
3: I don't get that. I'm a cat person. Um, I, I, I don't see... I mean it it is the the cards against humanity sort of thing where people's basest instincts come out during a board game or a card game but I still can't see 8.8 million.
1: Well to be fair this was based upon a webcomic and you know webcomics are you know great and they're fun and but usually you don't have something tangible to hold on to or to play with other friends or bring other one people back to the webcomic so you know this is one of those things where you get to have a little piece of what goes on out there and that you love.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the reason everybody backed it. Um, and to be fair to uh, Matthew Inman, who does the oatmeal, uh, where the art's from, he was a vet tech, so he does love animals. But he probably also has been mauled by, like, a dozen <laughs> cats. <laughs> so This is his revenge, huh? <laughs> yeah, he's allowed to hate cats.
2: It's also uh, important to point out that it's not that someone is blowing up the cats. It's that the kittens are blowing things up. Oh, ah, see
0: now it's not know. even a problem,
2: yeah, <laughs> okay. like a kitten like there's one with a cat with a mouthful of dynamite blowing up a ship, another one blowing up a building by gnawing on a hand grenade, and then another one walking across the computer that launches nuclear weapons and launching them <laughs> so they're terrorist cats, which is literally what cats are pretty much so
3: so they should have called this kittens exploding,
2: yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, but if you look at the art, I mean, the art is really, you know, it's charismatic. It's what you'd expect from oh, uh, from yeah. these guys. And the gameplay looks fine. I mean, it's it's nothing fancy. It's nothing unusual. But it'd probably be a pretty fun, casual game.
3: Like I, Kittens in a Blender. I think it will be one of those cutesy, uh, yeah, it's fun to play, fun to teach new people. We'll certainly
0: see because half a million people backed it, right? So. Yeah.
3: It'll be something. It'll be popular when it comes out.
1: How do you top Exploding Kittens?
3: Catan the movie. Huh? Huh?
1: Is it Exploding Catan the movie?
3: (laughs) Oh,
0: God. Is
1: it directed by Michael Bay?
3: You know what? That's the only way this would be good. Anything (laughs) could
1: happen. Anything could happen when your sheep is strapped with (laughs)
3: explosives. (laughs) I, I, I have to discuss this because there's a lot of talk about it. It's like the number one topic. Trending topic. And uh, most people have gotten it all wrong. They don't understand what, what just took place. Um, this producer, Gail Katz, who did The Perfect Storm.
1: Is that exploding, uh, Gail
2: Katz? <laughs> I guess she's going to
3: make a movie called The Perfect Game. Uh, but no, all she did was buy the rights to a novelization of Catan. Did anybody remember uh, The Settlers of Catan, the novel?
2: It was actual, did- an actual book never even knew that existed i can't remember it because i was never acquainted with that fact even in the first place
3: this woman called rebecca gable sounds like fan fiction but um (laughs) wrote a book and and that's what producers want they don't want to make it out of a game they want to have a a treatment so she optioned and it's just an option Uh, doesn't mean she's going to make a movie it just means she has the rights to it if she can find someone stupid enough to write a script for it then maybe they'll make it
1: um
3: this worries me
1: because the last time that someone did some sort of fan fiction into a book, we ended up with 50 shades of gray. So <laughs> I think the uh I got wood for sheep joke is going to come up a lot in oh, this oh. upcoming movie.
0: Chris, Chris, we agreed not to go there. <laughs>
2: that would be the title. That would be the perfect. Mr. Sheep we, is we waiting not for to go you. There. That's the mo- that's the title. <laughs> But no, so I'm looking up the book a book review of the Settlers of Catan book right now. It says that the book follows the lives of the people of Alassund, a small coastal village that is raided by neighbors where food stores are pillaged, women and children are stolen, and livestock is killed. Forced to survive the harsh winter without supplies in a barren land, the Alassanders decide to seek out the mythical island of Catan and settle there. Led by two best friends, Canad Kandamir and Osmond. God, these are unnecessarily complex. <laughs> they set out on a perilous voyage in search of Catan with no knowledge of its location. Finally, with no water or food supplies and no hope of survival, they are washed ashore Catan by a violent storm. So hey, perfect storm connection. Uh soon the Alasunders begin exploring the island and select a site to build their settlement. As they go about establishing their society, conflict arises. Should they adhere to the old customs and traditions in a new land? I don't know, should they? I don't know. I think this they should is...
1: probably adhere to them until they get an expansion and then not adhere to them at all.
3: <laughs> I wanna know which one of those characters turns out to be the robber. <laughs>
2: I was just thinking that. Also, where did all these sheep come from? Why do they why does the ground just keep spitting sheep out at people?
1: <laughs> well, if cats can explode, ground can spit out sheep. I think that's basically how it works. It's it's a logic, logic puzzle, right? Yeah, yep.
3: I can think of better games, but you know, it gives. It, it, sorry, Drew. Don't don't try to rack to your brain. It's like no, exploding kittens.
1: With. The more you think about it, the the harder it hurts your head. Just yes, let's, let's, let's let's move on to something else, Drew. What else you got for us?
3: Heard. Oh, a uh, quick bit of news. So we've heard a lot about um, the problems on the west coast with shipping games. So companies like Fantasy Flight uh, have had problems fulfilling orders because uh, shipping was held up. They just uh, I guess a few days ago had a new contract with Longshoreman on the west Coast. so games or ships are being unloaded. Board games first, they're unloading those board games first from those ships. That's a priority to them. And yeah, it'll get caught up sooner or later. What I found interesting was at Dreamation, um, I was talking with Steve Oncor, the owner of um, stronghold games, stronghold games, yeah, mm-hmm. our friendly local publisher. He sh- he ships like 80% from Germany uh, is where he gets his stuff. But he said there's like 20% from China, but he has everything shipped through the Panama Canal. So he didn't get hit by it. It wasn't a problem. Of
1: course he didn't get hit by it. He produces Panamax. He know. knows exactly how to get those ships through.
3: I, no, I and that just got me to thinking, did he come up with a deal with the country of Panama to like, hey, I'll make a board game about, the canal. If you let me ship these for free, I don't know. It's a pretty good deal, but
1: <laughs> it's possible. He,
3: says, he said it's, it's worth it, not avoiding the log jam that always happens on the West Coast. um there's always problems getting things in. Fantasy Flight has problems a lot too.
1: And I know I've heard the same thing on a number of different Kickstarters that all of the different designers and publishers are sending out information and updates about their current shipments. So a lot of those shipments are delayed.
3: So while you're waiting for your games to come from these other publishers, go buy a game from Stronghold Games. They'll uh, they'll give you whatever you need. Um, oh, and uh, New York City Toy Fair. We did go to Dreamation, but we didn't make it to the Toy Fair. Um, it's it's basically it's an industry thing. You really got to be connected with the industry to go there. And, and maybe next year we'll pop in. Eric Martin from Board Game Geek um, did uh, a report. Uh, the uh, website Purple Pawn, the new site, did a lot of reports about uh, the fair. But Eric Martin's was interesting. He wasn't really impressed, but he admitted he's seen way too many games to be overwhelmed by by what they have at these fairs. It's just uh, a lot of rehashing of familiar themes and familiar mechanisms. And he repeated a saying that he made a long time ago: "New games are for new players." you know everything's new when you're a new player but if you've been around for a while it's and it's sad i guess to think about you know you walk into a big convention where there's hundreds of games and nothing is really standing out nothing's really hitting you over the head can you get jaded after a while
1: well coming from a convention full of games no. But
3: <laughs> well, we don't have as much experience as Eric Martin has, but will we get to that point? No. <laughs>
0: and okay. if it's possible, fortunately, that's like .001% of the population. Most of us can enjoy these games for the rest of our lives. <laughs> See, look,
1: I feel for Eric, and if he wants to turn over his toy and game collection to me, I would no, be completely no. fine with that. <laughs> Eric, we are here to help you. We understand the board game addiction. first step. Give all your board games to Board <laughs> Gamers Anonymous. We'll take no, no. care of them. We'll break you from that habit.
3: Oh, before he gets mad at me for misrepresenting him. He he still enjoys the games. He still likes it. No, no, no. Drew, don't, you fat. don't have to
1: say that. You don't have to make that up for him. He can send us the board <laughs> games. We're cool with that.
3: But but he's always looking for the next big thing. And it's rare that, that something like that comes along. Um, yeah. So That's true. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see that more and more. And finally, quick announcement. April 11th. Mark this on your calendars, International Tabletop Day, 2015. My question, when I hear about that, is why isn't every day Tabletop Day? Huh? Come on.
1: <laughs> well, it is with us, so we're we're fine with uh, that.
3: I could not figure out who actually does this. Is this uh, a Will Wheaton thing, Tabletop? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. It is
3: strictly from him, um, and the fact that it's international. I know that in the fall that the Lib- American Library Association does a tabletop, does a board game day uh, at libraries. So what was the purpose of Tabletop, the the video series, in creating this uh, special it's, day?
0: I always saw it as kind of a, uh, a board game version of free comic book day, like a chance to just get everybody into the stores um, It's kind of supporting the local game store because they send those kits out. They have tournaments. People come and they get free stuff. Uh, that's that's always how I viewed it.
3: All right. Well, I moved to Bennington, Vermont. They have a local game store, Gamers Grotto. I'm going to talk with them about it and see what uh, um, events that we can start
1: up here. Yeah, so uh, if you have a local game store and they don't have something posted about International Tabletop Day – talk to them because they can apply and get that free kit sent to them and they can run, you know, tournaments and events throughout the day. It brings a lot of people in, it's widely advertised, and it's a really a good day to bring people in who normally wouldn't come in to play games.
3: All right, we will we will make a special thing about that, but remember every day is tabletop game day. Absolutely. I wish. I
1: wish. <laughs> Sad voice. All right, so this past weekend, we had the opportunity to get the whole BGA crew together for gaming, which was great. And actually, we got to see a lot of you down at the convention. It was a lot of fun to get a chance to play with each and every one of you. And what a great time. There was gamers everywhere. It's just such a strange kind of vision to walk down this beautiful, extravagant hotel and just randomly see people playing board games, you know, on the floor, you know, at the bar at a random table near a elevator, just in the middle of nowhere, and then to see all these other hotel guests kind of walk around and like, kind of look at us funny. Because, you know, some of us was cosplaying, some of us were LARPing. So uh it was really a, a really fun and great time. So there was a lot to talk about there and our thanks to Vinny and to Mark who were running this double exposure did an outstanding job. Fantastic. And can't say enough about that. So Drew, what do you think about this, Dreamation 2015? Give me, give me your feelings here.
3: Okay. It was my first actual big convention. So um, I, I was impressed with the organization um, and how easy it seemed like uh, that it was pulled off and everybody was comfortable. Everything went off without a hitch. I was also impressed with the fact that the company running it, Double Exposure, has now built up to four conventions a year. Each convention has a different focus, has a different angle. And I thought that is that's really cool, appealing to all segments of the gaming population. Very impressed with how big that organization has become.
1: And how about you, Anthony? What did you think about the convention? You know, I got to meet a lot of really great
0: people, got to learn a few new games. Um, everybody was so nice. Like there was no like awkwardness or weirdness or um, everybody was like excited to meet other people and hang out. Uh, it, it's not, you know, it's. It's not your typical situation. Everybody's there for the same reason. So it was fun to hang out with those people who are in the exact same experience as me. Um, a lot of fun people that we met, some people who taught us some awesome new games that we'll talk about later. Um, met, uh, again, uh, Vinny and Mark were fantastic. Mark was a trooper with that four hour auction set. Jeez, man. What a great <laughs> job. Four hours. Yeah. Yeah. It, that was. And we were there for maybe two and a half, three of that. So it was. He was. And he was not letting up at the end he was ready to keep rolling so that was fun um so it was a lot of fun and i, I look forward to future conventions meeting more people getting a chance to uh you know bring bga with us this time we were kind of just hanging out and playing games but you know of course we were representing for bga but uh you know it was a chance to get
1: together for the first time in a long time and had a lot of fun and daniel how about you that was your first big convention right
2: Yeah, it was my uh, first big-time convention, my first convention of any kind, really. I mean, I've done some academic conferences before, but that's a very different atmosphere, right? Uh, And usually, you guys know this about me, big groups of people I'm not super comfortable around. uh, But, you know, I really felt okay there, right? It was... Uh, really, just a good group of people, and not just that, but people were willing to give you space if you needed it, uh, and you know, people were very respectful and very nice. Even though there was a lot of people trying to use the same space, uh, we played a lot of good games, got to meet a lot of fun people. Uh, a special treat for me uh, was meeting meeting uh, Luke Crane, who's the designer of two of my favorite role playing games, uh, Burning Wheel system, which is. Complex and a little baroque, but amazingly sophisticated and really one of the most interesting worlds I've seen in the role-playing game. Uh, And then Mouse Guard, which is a lot simpler and cuter, uh, but really just a fantastic game. It's kind of like a Red Wall sort of game where you really get the feeling of what it would be like to be a little mouse trying to fight things like a fox, which is a scary cataclysmic event equivalent to, you know, an elder dragon god. Um, but yeah, so I got to meet Luke Crane, who, as you guys can tell as I'm ranting, uh, is a little bit of like my game designer crush. He's one of my favorite <laughs> role-playing game designers. It's like him and Monty Cook and then, of course, you know, the elders, Gygax and so on. I've uh, seen so, the posters in your bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Those are private posters. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really uh, a, a great time overall got to meet some great people play some great games and of course it was very exciting to just sort of bump into Luke Crane and, and talk a little bit of role play game design with him and hopefully I bump into him some more as we keep hitting up the circuit and we can talk some more and how about you Anthony did you meet anyone interesting there yeah yeah it was awesome we met a lot of great people um you know
0: from Eric who taught us role for the galaxy and was very very patient with us thanks for, Eric for a good two hours yes um, <laughs> fantastic game by the way thank you so much for teaching us how to play it properly um and then jr uh from geek nights who taught us uh courtier and he was up from texas of all places on his kind of east coast winter uh apocalypse tour i don't know yeah.
1: who takes a trip to feb in february to <laughs> new york and boston but he's a trooper yeah and he came up in the snow and it was brutal And we really thank him because, you know, Cordier was a game we really wanted to get to the table, and that was a Philip DeBerry game. So he kind of sat down and kind of ran us through the quick rules set of that. And Geek Nights, man, really, you know, at the last Dice Tower year-end kind of wrap-up, they asked each one of us, you know, what was the most important thing about 2014? And for, you know, our crew, it was about service. The extra life event we did in order to raise money for children in need and kind of spread out to the community really made a big impact and we were so glad to be a part of bringing that out and that was such a that was such a great event but such a small event compared to the huge and outstanding events that Geek Nights does for everyone out there in the community they do such good work and just a shout out to JR and everyone there thank you for being a great light in our community and showing us all the good that we can do and you know we hope BGA can at some point rise to your level because there's a lot of people out in need and gaming is a great social activity to bring everyone together
2: Yeah I mean it was really remarkable you could see that sort of attitude even in just the brief interactions we had with him and he was running what four tables at the same time and you know just trying to make sure everybody was settled and happy and help everybody out and it, it was a really a, a great interaction, so it was great to meet him.
1: All right. Well, that was Dreamation 2015. We're definitely looking forward to all the other co- conventions from Double Exposure and, obviously, Dreamation 2016. <laughs> right. Hope to
3: see all you people, uh, local listeners there
1: Absolutely. next year. So speaking about Dreamation and all the fun conventions with board games, Let's talk about some of our acquisition disorders. And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition Disorders, that's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos. And, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much. But maybe, I don't know, maybe you might need the expansion. All right. So our Acquisition Disorders are right around our Dreamation 2015 convention. And with good reason. As Anthony was saying earlier, Mark put on an outstanding auction and I have to say some, some stand-up comedy too. I mean especially when you're up there for four hours talking about you know Eurogames, he, he he had his things going. He was throwing some puns in, he had some one-liners, he had some knock-knock jokes. He really did a great job. And above and beyond all the entertainment value that you got from Mark being up on stage and the crowd kind of interacting, we actually did quite well in the auction, an auction that we kind of stumbled into and we're just like walked out like, oh my God, I can't believe we got all these games. (laughs) So we did quite well and it's almost, we almost did embarrassingly well. So we wanted to talk about some of our acquisitions there. So I'll start off and talk about the three games that I was able to pick up. First up, I was able to pick up The Agents. Now, The Agents was a Kickstarter game, and it had this really interesting mechanic where it's a two-player game. So when you place the cards down to build this little tableau, one special ability of the card is going to benefit you because it's pointing towards you at the bottom, and the other side of the card, the top part of the card, is going to benefit your opponent. So depending on... How you kind of you know spin that card around to which way it points? That's who's going to benefit. So I had seen this Kickstarter and it kind of closed up pretty quickly, and I wasn't too sure about it. But it got good reviews. I really enjoy the dynamic gameplay, and was able to pick it up for I think about fifteen dollars. So I got the base set and I got the Kickstarter stretch goal. So I think it was another four or five packs added to it. So it was really a great deal. Now, that's just the start. Not only did I get the agents, but I also got Glory to Rome, the fourth edition. Now, this is a out-of-print game, and we talked about Glory to Rome previously. This is a tableau builder using cards for multiple different things. This version has the kind of cartoony artwork. Some people love it. Some people not so much. And it was a you know an earlier edition now the black box edition that came out through Kickstarter is out there but both editions are out of print so I was able to get this also at a very cheap price I think it was about twenty five dollars I was able to get this game and an out of print game and a great game glory to Rome really happy about that but my big pickup for the convention has to be War of the Ring with the expansion now I have to say, this was something I didn't think I was going to get. I think that there were so many Lord of the Rings fans out there that was going to be quite challenging. But I was able to pick up the game, the expansion. The Treebeard expansion was kind of stuck in there for $32. Can you believe it? $32! And the game was well taken care of. All these games were used. But really, what a great find. So how about
2: you, Daniel? You picked up some games too, right? Oh boy, did I. So on maybe the first day of the con I went into the vendors area and I was like all right I'll buy I'll buy myself one game buy myself one game and I saw Dead of Winter for MSRP right they weren't overcharging or anything and you know that game's gotten really hard to find and it's a fantastic game and I really wanted it so I went all right this is my splurge I'm buying Dead of Winter and I bought it from the folks over at Elite Battlegrounds which is a nice little brick and, uh, brick and mortar store over in Greenbrook Brook New Jersey and they had a little booth there, you know, and great people, it was a good price, I was glad to get what I got, Uh, and then we walked into the auction, and then I spent all of the money I had, pretty much immediately, uh, (laughs) so in the auction, I ended up getting Euphoria, a very hard to find game from uh, Stonemeyer. Uh, which is a fantastic game. I picked up Thunderstone Advanced, a nice little deck builder with a sort of fantasy adventure theme, which fits both my love of deck builders and my love of D&D-style fantasy adventure. Uh, I picked up a copy of Shogun, uh, which is a little bit outside of my usual zone, as is Euphoria, honestly. Uh, But they're really excellent games, and I would like to sort of stretch myself as a player, you know? Uh, and then I got Francis Drake, which might be the uh, the capstone there because of how hard it, I think that one is to find. And you know, I was a little nervous about picking up used games, but Euphoria was boxed and sleeved, and Francis Drake wasn't even punched yet. And all none of them are missing anything; nothing's damaged. So the auction really went great, and I got all four of those games for a pretty low price for about ninety dollars, which is well under half the value of those games put together. It was making out like a bandit, and I have hours and hours. Oh, so all these games are really in great condition. So, you know, the auction there was really remarkable in that regard. Uh, in fact, some of them came out better than they probably were sold to, right? Being sleeved and, like, deck boxes and everything. That's awesome. Uh, and I ended up getting all four of these games for about $94, well under half their value. Uh, and so this was a really uh, exciting day. I, I made out like a bandit. It, it was fantastic. But I think, I'm not sure, I'm pretty happy with what I got. And I think Chris got some impressive th- stuff. But it was Anthony that might have stolen the show. So, Anthony, why don't you tell us about what you got? All right. So, I did not come away with nearly as much volume, but
0: I did get the heaviest game that was up for auction. Uh, So, when we walked into the room, there was a lot of games that looked interesting to me. Some I already owned, and I was just amazed that they were up for auction. Others that I was interested in buying, but wouldn't necessarily break the bank for. But there was one in particular that I've talked about multiple times that I was immediately drawn to and kind of expected to go for a lot more money so i didn't actually think i'd get it um and that's space hulk and that's the uh classic games workshop one-on-one epic space battle game miniatures just everything i like about board games super complex super hard to find (laughs) super hard to play um lots of cutting and gluing and painting uh Actually, just posted something on Twitter this last week asking people if they preferred painted or unpainted minis, and I think I might be the only one who prefers painting their minis. <laughs> Everybody else would rather get them ready to roll. Um, so this game was—it's one that I've always looked at, and when they reprinted it in in uh, December, I was very excited. I was, you know, hoping I could get a copy, but it's still one hundred and twenty-five dollars, and. That's a little rough on the gaming budget, uh, especially around Christmas time, and double especially with a new baby. So, have not picked it up yet, it was starting to become hard to find again, they had it at the auction, and I immediately bid on it, not necessarily expecting to get it, and lo and behold, nobody in the room wanted to go over $50, so, bam, that game is mine now. And that was a sealed copy,
1: too, on top of
0: everything else. Yes, sealed copy. Brand new, perfect condition. Um, everybody, everybody in the room was wondering if I was going to resell it, and I am not. I do it. I did want to own this game. So, um, actually, two, maybe three people threatened to steal it on the way out of the convention. <laughs> so, and I did get a little round of applause when I won the
3: auction.
2: You so. did
3: top buy of the day, huh?
0: In yeah. fairness,
2: you kind of stole it too, right? You got an unopened, you know, still in shrink wrap copy of a rare game for what, 40% of its sale cost? Yeah, yeah, and this is not a
0: game you can get on sale. Games Workshop doesn't sell to places like Game uh, Miniature Market. Um, you have to buy it in the store, you have to buy it at retail, and it's super hard to get. So, I was surprised nobody bid higher, especially considering the resale value of the game. You can turn around and flip it for the face value. Um, but I guess I was the only one in the room who actually wanted to play it, so uh, I shall now play it. And paint it. And paint it, yes. (laughs) Not sure which will come first. Probably the painting. It'll be a while before I play it.
1: All right, Drew, I know that you missed the auction, but how about some acquisition disorders on your behalf?
3: I marched to a different drummer, just like one of my favorite characters, Stewie. (laughs) Stewie from Family Guy. Um, Gale Force 9. Just announced that they're releasing a series of games based on Family Guy. Not stupid trivia games, not reskins of um, old classic games, but very own original games. Uh, first one is called Stewie's Sexy Potty. So not potty party, um, which is like a reference to one of the first or second season episodes. Uh, I'm intrigued. I'm definitely going to get a closer look at it. And I love the Family Guy IP. Um, they just haven't done much with it. So I want to see if Gale Forest 9 can handle it and come up with some really intriguing uh, spins on the characters we know and love you know, or, or loathe and Decade, maybe.
2: You know, it's interesting. So you would mentioned this game earlier, and I had zero interest in it because I'm honestly not a huge fan of Family Guy anymore. And yeah, you know, Family Guy games and all games like that have tended to be bad in the past. But then you mentioned Gale Force Nine, and mm. I kind of like Gale Force Nine. They make a <laughs> lot of good stuff, especially you know for D and D affiliated stuff. And so I wonder if that if that quality carries over, right? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to be knockoffs.
3: You know, how they'll mostly they'll take an IP and they'll just have a, a lame trivia game or something. No, uh, I'm going to give them a chance. Let's take, yeah, a,
2: take a look. See how it turns out. Maybe they'll finally be like a a decent family guy game. <laughs> Oxymoron? Is that- yeah, I feel a little nauseated saying that or like dizzy, I think. But who knows? It could happen. Let's
1: stop talking about the acquisition disorders and let's talk about what's hitting our table this week. And now at the table with BGA. Alright, so once again, going back to Dreamation 2015, we got a chance to play a lot of great games. First up, let me talk about Diamonds. This is the Mike Fitzgerald trick-taking game that really gives trick-taking a little bit of a boost. Now, you've probably played hearts, you've probably played spades or clubs. Diamonds is a little different. Now, it does have that basic trick-taking mechanic where you're trying to take the tricks and if you do, you'll get a special bonus. In this case, you'll be able to use a special ability. Now, the club, the spade, the heart, and the diamond, they all each individually have their own ability, and their abilities are around diamonds. Now, in the game itself, there are these little kind of plastic diamonds, acrylic, where you're pulling them from a main stash, you're putting them in front of your screen depending on which action you take, But the real best action you want to take is either to pull them from the main stash and put them in your vault, which is a diamond action, or be able to take them in front of your vault and put them in your vault. Because if they're behind your vault, you're going to score bonus points. And that's really what you want. Now, above and beyond that trick taking and the basic kind of manipulation of these diamonds, you are going to be working and working against other players. So based upon how the tricks play out, if you win all the tricks, then you'll be able to get an, ad- an additional action based upon if you won the clubs, diamonds, spades, or hearts, or if you win no tricks at all, you'll be able to take two diamond actions, which actually takes those little diamonds and puts them in your vault. So when the game comes to an end, you'll count out the little plastic diamonds in front of your vault, those will count as one point each, and the ones behind the vault will get extra bonus points. It's a fun, it's a light game. It was our card game of the year for 2014 on on the Dice Tower. I continue to really enjoy this game. I had some great competition. I had some great people from the Stronghold Knights teaching this game. So thanks to them very much. And I got lucky. I was actually able to win this game. It was my convention win, so it was a great time. What about you,
2: Daniel? You you played with me. Did you enjoy the game? Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I, I'm a pretty big fan of trick-taking and trick-kicking in general. And I like that they have a way of balancing the game that actually makes it sort of both a trick-taking and a trick-kicking game, right? Where if you're winning all the tricks, you want to keep winning the tricks. But if you haven't won any yet... You really, really want to not win any, so you get two free diamond actions when the round resolves. So that was a really good uh, balance. And I like the diamond pieces. They're well made. I do have to say, though, that so in a trick-taking game or a trick-kicking game, you really only have so many pieces to the game, right? So many uh, materials. And the one that you spend the most time with is going to be the cards. And the cards are a little boring. The game is fine, and that's, you know, so if you're not really too worried about that sort of thing, that's not going to bother you. And it doesn't really bother me. It's still an excellent game and still one that I'm honestly thinking about buying myself. But I do wish there was a little more charisma to the cards and, in fact, the little vault shields. I thought they were kind of meh. Hmm. But it's a great game. It's just a little bland looking.
3: Okay, what I want to know, I don't really care about your opinions (laughs) we have an expert of trick-taking games among us that I want to hear what he thinks of this. Anthony, tell us. What's Yes, your opinion I am an expert. Diamonds? I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> you should all defer to my opinion on trick-taking games. <laughs> and in this case, we have a winner. Um, <laughs> I talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, I played it with Margaret, my wife, um, a few times, actually. And it plays extremely well. So... Here's the thing about trick-tanking games that drives me crazy. They oversimplify to the point that all too often, if you're playing with more than three players, at least one person does nothing for an entire game. It always happens. Um, It's not always me, but I see it in other people. (laughs) And when it is me, I hate it. So any game that doesn't rectify that problem is not a good game in my opinion diamonds doesn't only rectify the problem it seems to go out of its way to make sure that it's never a problem you can win tricks and use that as part of your strategy you can avoid them and use that as part of your strategy every single card you play has a purpose and it's not complicated it's not overly complicated and they're not he doesn't take it to some absurd level and turn it into like a worker placement game or something that will alienate anybody who wants to play it works and to me, that makes it a fantastic game. I wouldn't even, you know, punish this game by calling it a trick-taking game. It's a strategy trick-something game. I don't know. I'll think it's something new, but it's, it's a good game. I own it. Um, I purchased it a while back, and I'm very happy to own it. It's one of the only two <laughs> trick-taking games I would recommend,
1: um, and it's by far my favorite. Well, that's definitely high praise from the trick-taking master
2: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> all right. How about you, Daniel? What did you play during the convention?
2: Uh, well, probably my favorite game, the one that sticks out to me the most, is one we all played together, as well with you know one uh, new friend, uh, and under the vigilant guidance of Eric, uh, our our mentor. Uh, was Roll for the Galaxy, which we we talked about a bit already, Uh, but Roll for the Galaxy for those of you who don't know it, is set in the same kind of universe as Race for the Galaxy and resembles Race for the Galaxy in a lot of ways Uh, but what you do in this game is you roll dice and the dice indicate what sort of tasks you can assign them to and you assign them to complete those tasks Uh, so it's got a little bit of die rolling a little bit of almost worker or resource placement, I think resource placement would be more appropriate here, uh And tableau building and a lot of really interesting dynamics. And now I'll say here I haven't played Race for the Galaxy, but I loved Roll for the Galaxy. Partially because this tableau that I was building was so cool, right? It ended up doing all these crazy things, letting me reassign dice and get more dice and all of that. Uh, Partially because... And partially because the feeling of rolling you know, 12 dice at once is something that is fundamentally and almost bestially satisfying, right? It's just, yeah, look at what I'm doing. Uh, you feel so powerful when you do that, like so much is happening there. So it was really a very satisfying game for me. Um, of course, this might be tinted by the fact that I won, but we'll <laughs> set that aside for now. Um, But it really was just a fantastic job. I I do think the game is a little pricey. It's, what, $60 MSRP, Uh, which is a bit more than I would want to pay for it. But I do have to admit that with the high-quality, nice-looking dice, with the dice-rolling cups, with the uh, little tableau tiles, with the screens, with the various boards involved, you are probably getting your money's worth. It's just I don't want to spend that much money. Uh um, partly because I spent all my money already. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a really, really fun time. I really enjoyed it. What did you guys think? Drew, what did you think about this?
1: I learned Race for the Galaxy from you. What did you think about Roll? Well, uh,
3: I am a big fan of Race for the Galaxy. I own almost all the expansions. I don't put this in the same category. I don't consider this as like a necessary expansion because it goes off in a different direction. It takes a lot of things that I'm familiar with, a lot of the worlds and developments but it changes uh, the mechanic drastically. It's no longer about um, producing and consuming. It's about dice management. It's 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 cool. I like that for itself. The fact that um, you have to use your dice wisely, and uh, you might you might waste your dice. But then on the other hand, the dice you don't get to use this turn, you get to use in your next turn for free. Otherwise, all the dice you use, you have to buy back. So. There's the continual um, uh, pressure to get money and pay for your dice with the money. I like that. It's a different game. Um, I just don't think it belongs in the Race for the Galaxy family, Mm. but I think it stands on its own as a dice game. I I enjoyed it for that.
1: Would you pick this one up? Would it be a buy
3: for you? No. No, it would be a play. It would just be a play.
1: Yeah. How about you, Anthony? What would you
3: think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I i see where drew's coming from i kind of lean in that direction i don't think it's necessarily that different from race for the galaxy um it's definitely a different mechanic the whole dice building and worker placement aspect is very different from the core mechanic of race for the galaxy um but you do have the same idea of the multiple currencies and the production and consumption and the building out new worlds um all of that felt very familiar. All the iconography was very familiar. Um, the thing that, to me, despite all of that, that felt the most different was the pace of the game. A Race for the Galaxy is such a tight, quick game. And while it is fiddly, because there's so much going on, and it takes a while to get used to all that, all those icons, um, you can play that game pretty quick. Uh, Roll for the Galaxy, I don't see how this game would ever play that quick, uh, unless someone just rushed and built all 12. Like uh, True did. Which did happen, (laughs) yes. Thanks, Um, (laughs) Drew. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because if you're playing a dice game, it's fun to roll the dice. The game does a good job of keeping everybody in line in terms of the order of play, and there is kind of that engine-building mechanic in some cases. Um, I had a little bit of an engine myself when I was playing where every time I produced uh, green... I'm just gonna say green dice because I don't remember what everything represents. But every time I <laughs> produce green, sorry, every time I produced green dice on those planets, I had not only bonus money from leaving the dice on the planets, um, but I got bonus victory points when I consumed them. So it was kind of this steamrolling engine where, as long as I left one die out there, I always had enough money to take my dice back into my cup, and I was getting all sorts of bonus victory points every single round. So in the course of about three or four rounds, I went from almost certainly last place to a very close second place, and that was second place to Daniel's like Goliath engine, whatever he was doing. So <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun, um, and you really can't tell what's going on in terms of you know who's leading or how quickly their engines building up because of the dice mechanic. There's that randomness to it. Someone could get a few good rolls in a row. Um, But, like any good strategic dice game, there's enough to mitigate the randomness that you can build a strategy, anyways. Like what Daniel did, he can pretty much choose what his dice were going to be because he invested so heavily in those tiles. Um, To me, the only real major random part is the tiles you draw out of the bag. And even that can be mitigated a little bit if you swap them out. So, it's a good game. It felt a little like Race for the Galaxy. I feel like they do belong in the same universe. It's not as much, I don't have as much. On playing it as i do race for the galaxy but i do enjoy it a lot so it's a very strong play and i feel like if i played it a few more times it could bump up to buy but it's not quite there yet
2: yeah so it's interesting so i, I do think that it's for me it's, it's on the verge of buy as well um but i'm also pretty keep about these sorts of things uh one thing is i think it took us a really long time to play this game it's supposed to have a play time of 45 minutes and we played for like an hour and a half at least twice that right uh, so I think we were going very slowly, partially the, because we were all new to this game, right? No, but
3: you're adding more dice, and that obviously takes more time. The, everybody has more dice as the game goes on. And yeah, it's going to take longer to make your moves, make your choices. Sorry, now you, I'm actually surprised it's only 45 minutes. Um, I thought it
0: was a little bit longer, but that's pretty close to the race for the Galaxy playtime. I really am interested to try to play this a couple more times because... Um, I almost feel like it could become quicker and more streamlined, kind of like Race for the Galaxy with time.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and it's really a, I thought, a fantastic game. I really enjoyed it. Uh, The more you guys are kind of down on it, the more I kind of want to, I mean, relatively down on it. You're not really being down on it. The more I want to buy it, actually, now, to prove that it's worth the buy, um, I, you know, I always end up doing that. I always push myself to an extreme position (laughs) the more I talk about something. Uh, But... For me, Roll
1: for the Galaxy is an outright buy. Now, one of the challenges about Roll for the Galaxy is going to be, as Daniel and Anthony said, the price point, because since it does play so closely to Race for the Galaxy, you kind of have to worry about justifying the additional cost here. Now, that being said, you are getting 111 uniquely created dice of all different colors, and they're actually nice dice. And you get these little dice cups that are for, you know, you get one for each individual player. And you get tiles that kind of start you off on the game. And then you get additional tiles that you pull out of a bag. So, component wise, it is an upgrade because Race for the Galaxy is just a deck of cards. So, it's understandable that the price is higher. But, you know, it's going to be a little bit challenging because there is a lot of similarities here. And,. I don't know if it's different enough, but for me, it really is. Being able to roll the dice and being able to place the dice in certain features and to kind of build a, let's say, a development or a settlement. So instead of just playing six cards when you want to build that um, six-point development, you can actually put dice on that development and build towards it, but you're locking down dice at the same time. I really enjoyed the the cup feature here, being able to roll the dice, it has a wild function on some of the colored dice so that you can actually use it for anything, and there's a reassign action that you can spend a die to be able to reassign a die. I was building an engine. It would just probably take, I don't know, probably four or five more turns before it was really kicking out points, but it's it's a lot of fun. It has a nice, a nice interaction when you kind of roll the dice and you flip the cup over and everyone's looking at each other's dice and what'd you roll and you know there's a lot more fun at least in the gameplay as daniel was saying the the you know the kinetic ability to roll a ton of dice and just hitting the table and then replacing and moving them around i don't know there's just something really fun about that and it's colorful, it's light. The components are all high quality. I enjoyed the fact that you started with more of a tableau than you do with race. Race, you get one planet. Here you get a planet, a second planet, and a development to start with. So your alien race here actually has a greater you know, starting strategy to it. It's something to build upon. But overall, a really great game, good components, a nice you know either reboot or sequel however you want to take it and uh i will be watching the price for this to drop because i will be picking this up if daniel doesn't pick it up first all right so with that being said how about you anthony what'd you play during the convention that really stuck out
0: Uh, i played a bunch of games um and had a lot of fun with all of them including race roll for the galaxy Uh, One of the more unique experiences that I had, though, was uh, Drew kind of, he ran downstairs at one point, and we were just sitting, I think, (laughs) hanging out, and he said, I need a partner for this pandemic tournament, and I wasn't doing anything at the time. I think I was just getting coffee at the bar, Um, so I was like, sure, yeah, I'll do that. I don't mind. Um, He mentioned that the prize was a chance to play in said tournament at Gen Con, and the prize for that was to play at said tournament in Essen, and not that I expected to win any of that, but anytime there's a prize like that, I'm, I'm in. Um, so I ran upstairs, and lo and behold, it was this very unique, um, customized pandemic tournament that was basically, uh, everybody was playing in pairs of two, and all of the roles have been preset, all the cards have been preset, the scenario was preset, there was a moderator who was reading out each of the cards... Uh, So everybody was experiencing the same epidemics and the same infections. Um, It was very, very cool, uh, just the way the game played out. So it was this kind of tense... You know, Pandemic's already this very tense experience, but it's even more so when you're kind of sharing it with about 20 people, um, 16 of which are also playing the exact same scenario as you. Uh, And it was a lot of fun. So I played the Quarantine Specialist, which meant I got to basically stop any infection cubes from hitting the board anywhere that I was connected to. Um, So Paris was an amazing place to hang out. Uh, And I basically hopped around the board stopping the infections so that we could focus on curing because if you got all four cures first, you won the tournament, um, or if you survived the longest. I'm not sure which happened because we were out relatively quickly. (laughs) Second second team out. Yeah, so... (laughs) But we were actually doing really well. We were very close to getting our third cure. And if we had just stopped the outbreak that kind of chained off and killed us off, we would have been in very good position. Um, I'm fairly certain the guys who won clear. this are the guys who had zero cures and zero outbreaks when we left. <laughs> so they were playing the very slow, very careful game, which I find boring. So I'm proud of how we played. Drew, what yeah. about you?
3: We, yeah, we tried to do both. Um, Obviously, I knew exactly what that other team was doing. It's just you are traveling around, um, putting out fires, and that's all you did. You weren't worried about the cards. You weren't worried about anything else. We could have done that, but it was a lot of fun trying to guess where the next infection would happen, and I would be the point man. The the other character in that tournament was the dispatcher. So I would go ahead, move around the board, and then bring the quarantine uh, specialist there to me. So it was like I was moving around, bringing Anthony to where I was to put out a fire there. And for a while, we guessed right; we were we were ahead of the curve. We knew exactly what was what was going to be coming. Um, it's just at one point you were in one place, I was in the other, and I was where the the outbreaks her- yeah. occurred, and they cascaded, and we couldn't stop it. Um, it was it was tremendous, it, because each turn was timed. You had um, a minute. Uh, 15 I think something like that Um, to make your decisions to talk it out and know what you're going to do draw your card figure out which cards you're going to keep so to have that timing really added to the tension of the game and uh, I think Pandemic would be a great game just with a timer even if you didn't do a tournament just because you know you're under the gun Uh, had a blast and I want to do it again we're going to win the next one Anthony
0: yeah, definitely. Yeah, and Pandemic's a game that I know I like, and every time I've played it, I've had fun. But I don't seek it out. You know, it's not a game where I bring to the table intentionally. It's if it's there, I'll play it. If it's not, I'm perfectly happy to play another game. Um, I'm not even a big co-op guy most of the time. But every time I do play it, I have fun. And this particular way they set this up was a lot of fun because it creates a kind of structure that most co-op games don't have, um, while still implementing that level of chaos that, that makes it fun so yeah. i will absolutely sit in on the next one was, this was great i
1: had a great time all right how about you drew anything interesting
3: at the table no well yeah there were a lot of good things at the table but uh, <laughs> the most thing the most uh, interesting thing i did that and the dreamation was away from the table. Mark Andrews of Double Exposure, he was remarking to me how much LARPs have become a part of their conventions. There were dozens of LARPs this weekend, live action role play. Uh, I'd never done a LARP before, so uh, I joined up with one that has been quite uh, quite well organized called Oblivion. Um, they they hold weekends throughout the summer uh, of role, of LARPing. And so they also come to the double exposure conventions and do a couple evenings to introduce people to them and, and let you have some fun. Um, it was a blast. It was a, if you've guys ever seen the movie Nights of Badassdom, um, it, it wasn't a big popular movie, but it was recent, 2013. Um, I can imagine these guys at their camps in the summer spending a whole weekend just running around the woods. Um, we were in a small room. At uh, the Hyatt Hotel and they had it partitioned off so we were moving from room to room to room and there were um, non NPCs, non player characters interacting with us Um, we had challenges to face, doors to unlock puzzles to solve um, different types of uh, creatures attacking us with different kinds of weapons that we had to defend ourselves with all in, in very dark circumstances, that was a lot of fun. But it was um, it was manic. It was just get in there, solve puzzles, get hit, hit back. I would like to try something with a little more thought. You know, it, it, it was almost like playing Dungeons & Dragons where you're just killing monsters and you're just being attacked by more monsters. Uh, there are other LARPs that uh, involve more role-playing. There was a, a real Godin that my nephew Andrew played Based on, um, based on the Game of Thrones, didn't have any characters from the TV show. These were peripheral characters and the families that you're familiar with. The way he described it sounded like fun. I'd love to do that. The way the different characters interacted with each other, in the same style as the books and uh, the TV show. So I can see myself going for LARPs in a big way because um, there are enough of them. There are enough different worlds to inhabit. You'll always find something that you can enjoy, that you can feel comfortable in, that you can create a character and just move right in and move about comfortably. Compared with a standard sit-at-the-table, roll-dice, role-playing game, I think I would enjoy this more because the character you develop is not on a piece of paper in front of you. It's in your head. You have to keep that character close to you. You have to really become that character. There's even more of an emphasis on taking on the role and living that role and living in that world so it's like get get that rpg off the paper and get it get it out there get it in the real world that's what larping is and i enjoyed it i'll do it again
1: all right that's great so that's all we're at the table for this week now on to our feature review This week, we have a special feature for you. A kick in the habit presented by Stonemeyer Games Between Two Cities, designed by Ben Russett and Matthew O'Malley, and art by Beth Sobel. It's a three to seven player game with a one to two player variant. It plays within 25 minutes and it's for ages eight and up. It's the early 1800s, time of immense construction and urbanization. You are a world-renowned master planner who's been asked to construct two different cities to help rebuild their city centers. Projects of such significance require the expertise of more than one person. So for each assignment, you are paired with another master planner to execute your grandiose plans will your planning and collaborative skills be enough to design the most impressive city in the world? Anthony, we got a chance to play this game at Dreamation 2015, the four of us, and then you and I got to play a two-player version of this. Why don't you walk us through an overview about the game and talk about the different mechanics?
0: This is a very unique game in a lot of ways, although it will feel extremely familiar the first couple times you play it. So the game is based on um, a couple of mechanics you're going to be very familiar with, the first of which is this idea of drafting. Um, everybody starts the, each round with a hand of tiles. You're going to be drafting them between however many players there are. Um, you're also going to be building out a tableau based on the tiles that you place down. Again, very much like other games you've played, like Seven Wonders or Among the Stars it's also going to involve a little bit of co-op play although it's definitely fits into that semi cooperative angle of things because there is only one winner at the end of this game Uh, and that's where the game becomes very unique so throughout the game you're actually building two separate cities one on your left one on your right one with one partner one with the other partner and as you draft the tiles as you pass them around the table you'll pick two from your hand each time, place them face down, everybody at the table flips them over at the same time, and then you start discussing with your two partners which of those two tiles is going to fit into your city. And this is where things get really interesting because while you need to make sure that you win, you also don't want your partner to win, so you have to try to make sure everything's kind of balanced on your side. And the tricky part is, while you have two cities... Only one of their scores counts, and it's the low score. So it's not gonna be, it's not gonna behoove you to ramp up your score on one side and down on the other. You have to make sure your cities are pretty balanced. So you need to constantly be looking not only at what you're building with your partners, but also what they're building with their partners, and make sure that you are getting the best of the deal. You can't really discuss what tiles are hidden in your hand when you pass them around. So in the drafting phase, you can't say to the person to your left, "Hey, there's a park in here, so maybe we should make sure we play the parks." But you can discuss openly once you've played your tiles face up, what your strategy is, or what you want them to think it is. Uh, That's that's a fun part of the game. Again, it's a semi-cooperative game. It's only cooperative in this particular aspect. At the end of the game, only one winner. Um, Another cool part of the game, because of how everything's done simultaneously is it takes the same amount of time, no matter how many players there are. A lot like Seven Wonders. Uh, It can go up to seven players, but it's still a 25-minute game. It's very cool because it's kind of... um, In Seven Wonders, you do end up feeling like things are very insular. You're playing with your own cards. You're not really interacting with other players, except maybe the military aspect. In this game, you have to interact with the other players. If you don't, you're not going to build out the city that's the best for you on either side. So in terms of the game itself... um, you know mechanically speaking there are a number of different types of tiles six overall each of the tiles has a special purpose um there are shops there are parks there are houses office buildings taverns and factories each of these can be played from your hand in various combinations um some you have to play in a row like the uh the uh, shops some have to be paid played in pairs like the parks some have to be played in volume like the offices and others you have to collect sets like the taverns Uh, and based on how you play these and how you match them up to the various forms of scoring that are available um, you'll score points at the end of the game you don't score throughout the game you do score at the very end based on the tableau you've built and the final tableau will be 16 different tiles and It'll vary depending on placement. It'll vary depending on the order in which you put them. It'll vary depending on the volume in which you place them. And then there are some that are affected by other players. The uh, in the factory, for example, the players with the most factories are going to score more points per factory than everybody else. So that's one of those areas where you have to keep track of what everybody else is doing. Um, there's also a very unique second round to this game when... For the first and third round, you're just getting one tile, has one building on it. That's the drafting phase. The second round, however, you're going to get duplex tiles. Everybody's just going to draw three of those duplex tiles, and they each of those duplex tiles has two buildings on it, and the interesting part is they're oriented in different ways. So some are horizontal and some are vertical, and you have to place those according to their orientation. Um, you're only going to get three when you draft, though. You have to pick two of those three, and you have to play them. Uh, There's no drafting there. So when even if you get three tiles that are completely (laughs) worthless to you for those particular two cities, you got to play them. So this is a very interesting part of the game. It kind of mixes things up. It forces you to rethink strategy. Sometimes you have to tweak things a little bit. And I think it adds a lot to what generally in a drafting game becomes a very rote, you know, kind of circular motion. Uh, It's a fun little mix-up to the way the game plays. In the end, though, you're going to have sixteen by or four by four to form sixteen squares, and you'll do the scoring at the very end uh, based on the specific score metrics for each of those six buildings, and you'll see who has the lowest score, the highest low score. Uh, if you tie with somebody, which is very likely since you share each of those cities with somebody else, your tiebreaker is the high score. So, if the city on your left is your lowest score and it's also the lowest score of the person on your left, then you'll look to the second city that you built to see which of them is higher scored. So nine times out of 10, you'll only go to that first tiebreaker um, because the second city will be a little bit different. Uh, Very unique game, a lot of different play mechanics here. It seems like it's gonna have high replayability because of the interaction factor. The game's a little different in the two-player variant, which we can go into a little bit later. but the seven player the three to seven player variant is very unique take on a very familiar mechanic um daniel i know you've been taking a look at the kickstarter page which should be up um today when we launch this uh what does it look like in terms of what people are going to be getting oh,
2: oh, i'm sorry Wait, sorry I've, I've been obsessively stalking this page were you were you saying something um uh yeah so it looks uh fantastic uh i've not closed it since I've opened it they gave us a little preview link and I am seriously considering staying up till midnight so I can back it then it it looks fantastic there's three real levels of support plus the you know the usual $1 one and they're going to make a toast to you in your favorite city if you give them a dollar uh, $29 or more you get a copy of Between Two Cities with all stretch goals and you can add up to two extra copies for $29 each at $39 or more you get a special edition, which gives you some additional more wooden tokens for representing your city and moving them on the scoring track. Uh, they're purely aesthetic, but they're pretty cool looking. Uh, and an individually numbered gold foil embossed game box. And then at $99, you get three copies of the special edition. So in the in the standard box, right, the retail game, you're going to get 108 building tiles, 24 duplex tiles, seven pairs of wooden city tokens. This is how you, you know, match your move up the, the track. Uh, with your cities to keep track of what city scored what. Uh, You get one scoreboard, a rule book in English, and seven reference cards. And the special edition, that's the $39 level or more, you're going to get seven more pairs of wooden city tokens that lets you sort of switch up what uh, little tokens you want to have. And the tokens are really cool. There's like little St. Louis Arch, there's the Taj Mahal, uh, there's the Colosseum, and in the uh, special edition, you get things like the Arc de Triomphe, the U.S. Capitol Building, Brandenburg Gate. So you get all these really cool, iconic features of cities around the world. Uh, and then you also get a French and German version of the rulebook for those of you who need that. Uh, the tile art is pretty simple, but represent- representative and pretty good looking. Uh, as you said, Anthony, re- the gameplay is fantastic. It's really creative. Uh, right now, they've not listed a lot of their stretch goals. They're going to wait till 24 hours uh, after launching, but knowing Stonemaier games and knowing how they work and, you know, having just gotten Euphoria and desperately pining over their treasure chest, which I didn't font and I'm kicking myself for, I am certain that the stretch goals are going to follow and be adequate. Uh, honestly, I'm surprised to see it starting off at $29 as your initial level of funding because that is considerably less than I thought this game would go for. It's about $10 less. I thought the, the special edition level is where the, uh, the normal level would sit, and the special edition would be 50 or $60. Uh, and when Chris said it was going to be like $30, there's no way. There's no way this game will be for $30. That would be way too cheap. Uh, so I'm going to fund this immediately. It's probably going to be the first thing I do tomorrow if I don't get to it tonight. Uh, it's just a beautiful game and a very promising Kickstarter, I think. So you'll definitely say you'll kick that off, Daniel? Oh, yeah. I'm going to kick this off as hard as I can. I'm expecting to you know, hurt my foot in the process. Uh, it's a great deal. It's a great game. And, uh, you know, you can't really ask for more than that. I mean, Stonemire has never put me in the wrong direction before. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to kick this off, and I'm going to suggest that all of our listeners do so as well. How about you, Drew? You got a chance to play. What did you think?
3: I love this mechanic of... Uh, building two at one time and trying to balance it's beautiful
1: yeah so definitely the card drafting which has been in play in a lot of games recently probably first most popularly in fairy tale and then seven wonders just kind of exploded and then as anthony was saying earlier there's the tableau building so once you pick the tiles and place the tiles depending where you place them a la suburbia that's going to have a big difference in the game because as anthony was saying in the overview the parks need to be put together and certain buildings are going to benefit off of other buildings. So there's some positive effects, some negative effects, some ways to kind of... The one challenge for me would be the kind of Hanabi mechanic where you're speaking to the other players or communicating to the other players within a certain framework. Because that framework, since it's not so strongly defined, can be a little bit challenging on... What is the proper amount of information to share that's, you know, in the spirit of the game? And what's the amount of information that kind of breaks the rules but in a kind of soft type of way? So with that, that that's a little bit of a challenge for me. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the designers talk a little bit more about what conversations to have and what conversations not to have that might give too much away. But this game is is an outstanding little light gateway game. The production's very nice, especially the little city tokens. Those are really nice, and I really like that Stolmeyer Games reached out to the community and asked what tokens they would like to see, so well played there. So this game, I'm going to be uh, probably, if Daniel doesn't, and I guess Daniel will be waiting to <laughs> 12 midnight to back this game, you know, we will have one copy, if not multiple copies. So Between Two Cities is now live on Kickstarter. Board Gamers Anonymous says, kick it off! All right, so that's it for this week. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek, and especially our Patreon count. We love your support. Until then, this is Chris. This is Anthony.
2: This is Daniel.
1: And this is Drew. And we'll save you a seat somewhere between our city and yours.